The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. If we see a Meadows indictment, it will be drawn very similarly. It's drawn to really avoid some of the questions, even the questions that are raised in the D.C. Circuit opinion, to sort of make that not an issue. So I, I think you could see the civil enforcement and they would have this opinion and could say there's no legitimate claim of privilege here, but I still think it would take time with justiciability issues. So I would expect them to wield more of this threat of criminal contempt going forward. I'm Benjamin Wittes and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 15th, 2021. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals last week issued a surprisingly under-discussed opinion in the case of Trump v. National Archives, which involves the production of executive branch and White House records to the January 6th committee. The opinion of a three-judge panel is a decisive rejection of Trump's assertions of executive privilege after leaving office. It also has potential implications for the witnesses who are refusing to testify before the committee. To chew it all over, we gathered in the virtual jungle studio, Lawfare's congressional guru, Molly Reynolds, Lawfare's executive privilege guru, Jonathan Schaub, and Lawfare utility guru, Scott Anderson, who took off his international law hat, put on his DC circuit hat. We talked about the opinion itself, what it holds and what it means. We talked about what it means for the witnesses who were holding out. We talked about whether it will stand and we talked about how the committee is doing in general. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 15th. The D.C. Circuit rejects Trump. All right, so Scott, get us started. What happened last week in the D.C. Circuit and why should anybody care? Sure. Well, on December 9th, we saw a decision come down in the NARA, meaning the National Archives litigation. Um, this was a case that we've discussed previously on the podcast and in Lawfare, which focused on a set of records that the 
January 6th committee had requested from the National Archives that are records from the Trump White House that are become the custody of National Archives at the end of the Trump administration and are subject to a particular statutory regime that part of which allows for Congress to request those records for certain purposes. President Trump intervened and said, I think some of these should be subject to executive privilege. The Biden administration said essentially, no, these are not subject to executive privilege. We find that the need for the disclosure of these records, the public interests, and the Congress's interest overrides that and doesn't kind of fails the balancing test. So we're not going to assert executive privilege. I don't think it is appropriate here. Uh, and then Trump sued to essentially prevent NARA from disclosing those records on the theory that they could still assert an executive privilege claim over Biden's uh, decision not to assert executive privilege that, in fact, President Trump had, as a former president, could do so on his own. We saw the former President Trump lose in the district court on this particular issue uh, while pursuing technically just a preliminary injunction. That's the posture of this whole line of litigation thus far. So it's not actually ruling on the merits. It's ruling on the likelihood of the merits and a few other factors. Lost in district court, appealed to the D.C. Circuit, held an exceptionally long hearing the week after Thanksgiving. Ironically, the transcript for that exceptionally long hearing actually came out four days after the decision. Uh, If you look at the docket, it's actually the most recent docket item, not the opinion itself. But the D.C. Circuit came together actually relatively quickly and issued this pure curium 3-0 decision by a, a panel of judges upholding the district court's opinion. And it's essentially its logic as well basically holding, look, in a case like this where the current president and Congress both agree these records should be disclosed, uh, and given the specific facts of this case, this is a case where former president's claims of executive privilege don't actually protect these against disclosure. So at this point, we're waiting to see what the next step will be, whether uh, Trump will further appeal this either to the D.C. Circuit en banc or to the Supreme Court, or whether this will actually result in NARA being able to produce these records. So Molly, how big a deal are these records to the 1-6 committee's investigation? Is this one of those decisions that is kind of important for theoretical reasons and for uh, the general principle of the ability to compel the production of, of records, or is it important because the records are actually important or both? I think it's both. I mean, I think that as we sort of think back over the last several years of litigation about Congress's ability to pursue information from the executive branch, any decision that comes down that strengthens Congress's hand, um, from my perspective, I think is is important. I think in this case, also the specifics of the information contained in these materials matters quite a bit. One of the things that the opinion talks about is that the material, sort of the information in this material, this may be the only way to get that information. It's sort of unique information um, that that might be in in these records, and so the the questions of kind of what the committee is up to uh, in terms of trying to build a cohesive narrative around what happened on January 6th. Like those are our bigger questions and we can talk about how any one piece of information or sort of set of pieces of information fits into that goal. But I do think that this um, this opinion, um, this decision is important for both what it means for Congress's power in this case and going forward, but also just really in terms of their ability to get this, the actual information contained in these records. 
And from your perspective, Molly, I when I read this opinion, there was uh, really one page of it that I said, like, if clerk Molly Reynolds had been writing this opinion, this language would sound almost exactly like this. So Judge Molly Reynolds or Clerk Molly Reynolds, what passage am I thinking about here? And what was the part of the opinion that jumped out at you as like vindicating your entire life? This is a it's a hard question, Ben, because um, it feels <laughs> like if I get it wrong, I'm reflecting that I perhaps don't know myself as well as I think I do. Um, but I mean, I think generally I think you're going to get it right. Uh, I mean, so one of the things that the opinion does is it says that in this case, Congress has a, uh, a legitimate legislative purpose to pursue these records. And we can sort of talk more broadly about what it means for us to live in a world where courts are constantly adjudicating Congress's legislative purpose. That's not a world I'm entirely comfortable with. But in this particular context, um, they do say the, the court the court does think that Congress has a uniquely vital interest in this information and that they have um, several legislative purposes that they could be pursuing with this information, including, and perhaps this is where you're going, making legislative recommendations about the security of the Capitol. Folks who have heard me on the podcast before or have um, read some of my writing um, on lawfare, I know that I'm particularly concerned about Congress making reforms to its own internal operations to prevent this from happening again. But I just, I do think that generally any any opinion that we get that strengthens Congress's hand to pursue information from the executive branch in support of its Article One powers is a victory in, in my book. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that the legislative purpose language is incredibly strong and very you in that it, while it doesn't say the question of legitimacy of legislative purpose is non-justiciable, which the Supreme Court probably, you know, would have an issue with, it does say that, you know, where the president and Congress agree as to the legitimacy of legislative purpose, there's really no role or almost no role for a court to second guess that. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Um, I'd be curious to hear what both Scott and Jonathan think about um, the degree to which the opinion relies on that particular constellation of interests and circumstances. So one thing that I took away um, from, from reading it is that in this case, we do have a situation where the current president and the Congress agree on what they think should happen. It strikes me that the court kind of relies on that fact pretty heavily in the opinion. And so I, I'd be curious sort of to hear what Scott and Jonathan think about the degree to which is that sort of the, um, the DC circuit setting us up for a future world where um, there isn't that agreement and they would reach a, a different conclusion. Um, because as, as we know, you know, we are we're recording this in December of 2021 for many reasons. It may be the case that come January of 2023, 20, uh, we no longer have agreement between uh, the House of Representatives and the White House on, on what should be done about particular requests for information. So I'm, I'd be curious to hear um, Scott and uh, Jonathan talk about that piece of the opinion. All right. So Jonathan, I want to I want to get to that question in a moment, but before I do, I I want to ask you what this means for Mark Meadows and for 
Steve Bannon and all the other witnesses who might be thinking about defying a committee subpoena, because while this is for executive branch production of documents, not for witnesses' testimony, uh, it seems to me key aspects of the principle is the same, which is the D.C. Circuit just held that, number one, there is a legitimate legislative purpose. Number two, to the extent that any privilege, executive privilege applies, the incumbent president has the ability to waive it. And number three, uh, that in the face of agreement between the branches, that will be as to the necessity of production of the information, that will be all but dispositive to a court on the question of of need and relative balancing in the context of an executive privilege analysis. So Jonathan, my question to you is, did the DC circuit just, you know, quietly resolve the Bannon and Meadows questions, at least in part? Yeah, I think they did. I mean, I think the foundation of what we've seen from Bannon and Clark and Meadows and, and the other and other witnesses who've uh, refused to comply with the subpoenas has been, you know, former President Trump has privilege. He has directed me not to comply with the subpoena to protect his privilege. So I am going to respect that wish. And you you saw the op-ed that uh, Meadows' attorney wrote saying, you know, he was stuck between, I think he said two rocks in a hard place talking about the committee's demand and, and President Biden's authorization to speak, but then having the counter to command from former President Trump. So to the extent all of that relies on the authority of a former president to assert privilege, I think the D.C. Circuit's opinion sort of sweeps that away. And a lot of what Meadows, even as of yesterday in the letter that his counsel sent to the committee, his argument, part of his argument was... I have to protect executive privilege for former President Trump. And I am obliged to do that. And I'm doing that in good faith. And I, he won't be able to claim that if what the D.C. Circuit says is the law, right? If the law is the former president has no interest above and beyond what the current president has said, then there is no privilege to protect uh, because Biden has cleared Meadows to testify. And so he can't, he won't be able to claim sort of good faith to the extent this becomes final. And so that's where I think the, the questions arise, because this is, as Scott mentioned, it's subject to a petition for rehearing on Bonk. They're, they've already indicated they will go to the Supreme Court with this. So because this is such an unsettled area of law and there's so much ambiguity, I would expect them to continue to claim good faith. And at this point, the criminal charge is complete. Right. The, the, as soon as the House votes on Meadows, um, it's there with done that with Bannon already. And so there's no further sort of action to be taken between them and Congress. They are in contempt. They've been they'll be referred to the Department of Justice. And so I think they will continue to say we were, we were relying in good faith on these arguments about executive privilege. They're being actively litigated in the D.C. Circuit. There's it's, the case is not final. The D.C. Circuit spent 68 pages trying to figure out the contours of executive privilege. So we were perfectly 
you know, legitimate in relying on these arguments of the former president that even the DC circuit couldn't dismiss out of hand. So I think actually the ongoing, the fact that there's ongoing litigation will play into this narrative that there's unsettled law and they were acting in good faith, relying on this direction from the former president. But as you said, the, the reasoning of the opinion just undercuts entirely their privilege claims. Uh, and, I, and I mentioned to you, I know Meadows has a separate claim of testimonial immunity that's not addressed in the opinion, but that's a, that's a different subject. But I, I guess the, the question of whether they're guilty or not guilty of contempt of Congress aside, once this opinion becomes final, either because rehearing and bonk is denied, because cert is denied, or because some higher court or the en banc court takes the case and essentially affirms the ruling, if that happens, Congress could simply reissue the subpoena, right? And, and you know, there becomes then leaving aside whether you were or not in contempt or whether the 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 good faith argument would excuse the contempt there would be no executive privilege basis at that point to to resist a second subpoena right right yeah so once it's final there would be no privilege basis because the you know this doctrine would have eliminated sort of former president trump's interests now whether you raise an interesting question because you know, at that point, there might not be any sanction either. If it's the same subpoena that they've already been referred for contempt for and prosecuted, then you run into potential double jeopardy claims. You know, I don't know what all the issues are to think through some of those, but it generally, and, and Congress has sort of, you, know, you look at legislative history in the past, they've, they've talked about the, this is one of the problems with criminal contempt is once you hold someone in criminal contempt, you're essentially done with them. Uh, you have no more mechanism for forcing them to comply. Uh, it's not a coercive punishment. They can't cure it. So they've sort of, once they move forward, Department of Justice can move forward prosecution. And that's another issue, whether they will do that with Meadows or not. But that that sort of ends the committee's engagement with Meadows. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, I think from a an administrative perspective, I'm not sure the committee needs to do anything new here to take advantage of that line of argument issuing a new subpoena or anything else like that, because I, I think all this would apply under the duty to comply with the original subpoena. The one thing you may need to see is the Justice Department updating its articulation of the facts in the indictment on which it's relying for saying these constitute a violation of this law to ensure it reflects a time period after this judgment or this opinion, and frankly, any other later opinions that might be closer to final. So if the Supreme Court denies cert right at that point, it's basically, this opinion is basically final. You may want to update it then because that's when it becomes clear that the rejection of this ongoing duty to comply with the subpoena is on its weakest legal ground. They've got the strongest argument to say this person has the right mens rea, the right intent to unlawfully disobey this. Up until now, they have a I think problematic, but still colorable argument that they had a legal basis for thinking that they wouldn't have to come forward. And so that that undermines that part of the prosecution. Um, but I'm not sure the committee has to do anything more. I think it's more the Justice Department. Maybe the committee could like bring attention to it, articulate it, but I, I'm not sure they need to. Yeah. And I just want to um, go back to the links Jonathan was making between this case and the Meadows criminal contempt and the Bannon criminal contempt. And I think it is really important to kind of look at all of these pieces together as part of a bigger puzzle. And, and this in some ways goes back to Ben's original question to me about whether 
what's important about this decision is that it allows Congress potentially to access actual information uh, that it can't get otherwise. One of the things that's going on here is that it is both about trying to get actual information from the National Archives, from um, Meadows, from from Bannon, but also what does putting pressure on various points and people in the system mean for the potential cooperation of other folks with the investigation? So we know that the the committee has done north of 300 interviews. Um, and so does any of this, you know, in, in the case of this circuit court opinion, the potential that Congress and the committee will actually get this specific information does, looking ahead to that possibility, does that change the behavior of other people who we're not talking about in this specific conversation? All right. So I have one more question on the ramifications of this opinion, assuming it stands, before we go to the question of the likelihood that it stands. And that is whether if we assume this opinion remains good law, whether the committee will behave differently with respect to the next recalcitrant witness. So in the past with Bannon and uh, Meadows, the committee has not sought a a court order uh, to compel because that takes forever because there were some unsettled issues of law. But now you have a potentially controlling precedent. And I could imagine the committee, instead of uh, holding him in contempt and being at the mercy of the Justice Department, and as Jonathan says, not having the coercive mechanism of contempt available, going into district court and asking for an order to compel based on a essentially on-point D.C. Circuit precedent. So Jonathan and then Scott and Molly, I'm curious for all your views of this, but does the existence of this opinion, if it stands, change the litigating posture of the committee in the months to come? So I think it might. They've got a couple of hurdles in terms of justiciability. So they have a McGann decision uh, from the en banc that says there is jurisdiction over these cases. So that should sort of allow that issue to be bypassed. But there's also a DC Circuit panel opinion that was subsequently vacated about uh, whether the House would have a cause of action. And so they're going to have to litigate that, which would take time. And I don't know what their time frame is, but it's certainly not something that they would be able to get final resolution of with and, you know, in three or four months, which is what Thompson has said is their time frame. So the time factor is always a problem with these civil enforcement suits. And, and that would might give them hesitation. I, I agree with Molly. I think their, their sort of best weapon at this point is that they are showing the Bannon is going to be prosecuted. They've held Meadows in contempt. And so it's this threat of criminal enforcement. That is, they're coming after you if you don't comply. And if you look at the Bannon indictment, and I would expect if we see a Meadows indictment, it will be drawn very similarly. It's drawn to really avoid some of the questions, even the questions that are raised in the D.C. Circuit opinion, to sort of make that not an issue. So I, I think you could see the civil enforcement and they would have this opinion and can say there's no legitimate claim of privilege here. But I still think it would take time with justiciability issues. So I would expect them to wield more of this threat of criminal contempt going forward. Yeah, you know, I think I agree with Jonathan on that front. They seem to have 
you know, made peace with this route going forward. And if anything, this has just strengthened the hand of the existing line of attack they were pursuing. Um, so I'm not sure, especially given the very narrow time frame, that it's that likely they'll they'll choose to divert this. The committee seems very intent on looking and projecting a strong sense of resoluteness. Um, I think we've seen that like in their approach to how they've taken Fifth Amendment pleadings from these witnesses. I think we've kind of seen this kind of unified front they've tried to project on a lot of these issues helped out by the fact that you know a, a lot of republicans refuse to participate um, but like i think that they will not want to change tack in response to this i'd be surprised uh barring an actual setback in fact again this strengthened their hands so but who knows and it might be a better route if there were more time available it's just this committee has a really narrow time frame already that's kind of self-imposed but then even their real deadline of the end of 2022 is a, is a, is fast approaching. Um, and so that is a, that's a tricky, tricky area in which to start inviting new arguments and complicating the picture. Yeah. I mean, I agree with everything that um, Jonathan and Scott have said. And what I'll add is just that it appears also that um, Benny Thompson, the chair of the committee, continues to um, hold the position that pursuing criminal contempt is a, a faster legal strategy than pursuing civil enforcement of uh, noncompliance with the subpoena. He uh, is, uh, was quoted this morning as referring to uh, criminal contempt as the more expeditious route. And so I think that that just reflects, again, this idea that they do not have that much time and that they are looking at what they think is going to be the fastest way to get, if not Meadows and Bannon themselves to comply, to use that threat um, to get other people to comply with requests for information and interviews. Yeah. And I think the fact that they moved forward with the criminal contempt for Meadows sort of shows you what they're thinking, because if, if there's any candidate for a civil action that would use this opinion and, and when it becomes final, but to use it to force testimony, it seems like it would be Meadows because he's got the most relevant information. He's got the sort of the strongest claims to privilege or immunity. So that seems the target that they would use if they really wanted the testimony and the other witnesses to come, you know, they may have similar claims, but they're not going to be in the sim- similar situation to Meadows. So the fact that they move forward with criminal contempt referral for him, rather than take this opinion and, you know, file a civil action, I think says this is the approach that they're taking, even with the witnesses that they most want to hear from. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service 
back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. All right, uh, so Jonathan, I want to ask you uh, specifically about a quirk in the Meadows case, which you referred to earlier, which is that in addition to the 
executive privilege issue, he has this testimonial immunity claim, which uh, really was uh, not available to Bannon. And so I guess my question is, to what extent do you think a criminal case against Meadows is more complicated, more difficult for the Justice Department than the Bannon case was? And should we expect that maybe the committee is going to get a surprise and the Justice Department is going to be reluctant to bring this? Yeah, so I think this is a really hard issue and it's it's very sort of arcane. So I'll try not to bore you with too many of the details, but the Justice Department has sort of long asserted in various formulations that very close advisors to the president are absolutely immune from congressional subpoenas, meaning Congress doesn't have the power to compel them to testify. And this is a status, right? That if you read some of the past OLC opinions, it is a status of the individuals. It's not something the president has to assert in each individual instance. Uh, the president will often direct them not to testify, although it doesn't always, but it attaches. And there are opinions from 2008 and then with Don McGahn that say even a former close advisor to a president doesn't have to testify. So there's nothing that addresses a former advisor to a former president, nothing public from the Department of Justice. So we don't know what the position is. And they're going to have to figure that out for the prosecution. And my guess is they'll try to avoid the issue like they do with privilege. So the testimonial immunity says you can't be compelled to testify about anything that was part of your sort of official duties in advising the president. Meadows sort of declined the subpoena on a number of grounds. He refused to provide documents. He refused to answer some questions that, that were clearly not about his official duties. So I imagine they can make that the basis for the prosecution in the same way they made sort of Bannon's total noncompliance the basis for prosecution. But it's a very tricky issue. It's one that Terwilliger raised, uh, Meadows' counsel raised in his op-ed in the Washington Post. He made it a central feature of his letter to the committee, sort of last-ditch effort to prevent a contempt vote. And there is a substantial precedent that a former advisor, particularly chief of staff, can't be compelled to testify within the Department of Justice. And so he's going to, they're going to, Department of Justice to prosecute is either going to have to avoid that issue or to distinguish it based on the idea that the current president has authorized it similar to the idea of privilege or that he is a former advisor to a former president and the immunity is no longer sort of necessary. All right. So let's talk about what the half-life of this D.C. Circuit opinion is. On the one hand, I look at it and say, hey, it's quite well-reasoned. It's reasonably tight. It's also pretty commonsensical. And there's no part of it that I read and say, wow, this is super out of step with where I think the en banc court or the Supreme Court is likely to be. On the other hand, I look at it and say this is a atypical D.C. Circuit panel. It's a it's three uh, more liberal judges, and I could really see either the D.C. Circuit on banc or more likely four justices on the Supreme Court to sort of look at it as kind of bait. Scott, what do you think? You clerked on the D.C. Circuit. Is this going to be a an on banc bait or a, or or cert bait. 
So it's interesting. There's actually a little bit of a procedural gamesmanship happening here that you actually have to look at the last footnote in the opinion to see what's happening. So underlying this phase of the litigation is an administrative injunction against NARA preventing them from essentially complying with the document request, giving the documents over on the basis of the district court's opinion. And the panel here, the DC Circuit panel says that administrative injunction is going to expire in 14 days. And then it cites a part of the oral argument that I don't recall listening to. I did not listen to the entirety of the very long oral argument. Uh, Ben and Jonathan, you may remember better because I know you listened to more of it than I did. And you might have as well, Molly. But they cite to part of the oral argument transcript basically saying, we're going to give you 14 days because that's how long you, the president's former president's counsel, Trump's counsel, said it would take you to petition for certiorari. Yeah, this was right at the end of the argument. Yeah. And so that's strongly implying that that's the next step. And it's interesting on two fronts. One, A, because it's saying that's not the next step, not on Bonk. If you were trying to stall and there is a strong suspicion uh, and concern, I think, among many people that part of Trump's game here is to try and drag out these proceedings as far as possible until a potential congressional change in 2022 slash early 2023, at which point the committee may be disbanded and the requests withdrawn. If you were, if that were the game plan, you probably would want to go on bonk because it's another procedural step before you get final resolution for the Supreme Court. You can still you know, petition for cert from the on bonk decision. But this is A, strongly suggesting they shouldn't do that, that they've said already they won't do that, I should say. Um, and B, that they're only giving them 14 days, which is a much more constrained time frame than you would actually usually have even for applying on bonk or petitioning for a rehearing on bonk when the account when the opposing party is a government agency or for petitioning for certiorari. Um, so the court's very clearly here trying to push the matter along, at least in my eyes, and saying, we all agree this is expedited. You, you, the former president's counsel, actually asked for expedited proceedings. If you recall, that's how they framed these whole proceedings from the outset, even though that's actually like a little bit of a using the president's counsel's own words against them situation as well. And so they're trying to be very sensitive to that idea that we need to reach final resolution on this and it has to happen at a quick time frame, which is really interesting because, again, I think that it shows the court's actually at least these three judges are, are sensitive to the criticism that these proceedings take too long and are subject to abuse and manipulation by dragging out the time frame that that undermines Congress. So they're at least trying to account for that a little bit here. On the substance, you know, I don't think that anyone would look at this from a perspective of the DC Circuit en banc and think you're likely to get a different outcome. I think through the McGann litigation, frankly, through a number of other opinions that have come out in the last couple of years, the D.C. Circuit, and including the Banque D.C. Circuit in particular, has shown itself that it's willing to, even though it's maybe not do so at quite the time frame or with the certainty that some people would like to see, support Congress's legitimate prerogatives. And I think that this fits with that general logic. I, I think it's pretty unlikely to see the D.C. Circuit taking a really different tack than this. And the numbers sort of support, you know, uh, a little more liberal view of the D.C. Circuit. The D.C. Circuit is more liberal now than it was 10 years ago when I was in law school, and it was a fairly conservative court. And so I, I don't think you're likely to see it again. That, that would seem likely to be if the goal was to stall. And I think that's why they're kind of, the, this panel's trying to forestall that option. In terms of appeal to the Supreme Court, I don't know. It's a good, really good question. It's hard to know exactly. What the panel tries to do here, which is very clever, is that they try and use the usual Supreme Court's and judiciary's reluctance to get involved in separation of powers disputes against taking up this issue. I mean, they frame their whole decision here as saying, we're not going to create a separation of powers dispute where the political branches have chosen not to do so. And I see that argument as very squarely aimed at the Supreme Court saying, look, you guys are 
so hesitant to get involved in separation of powers disputes, although Robert's court a little less sensitive than some of its predecessors, but still I mean, rhetorically very sensitive to it. It's saying there isn't one here, we shouldn't create one, uh, and trying to make that case to the court to some extent. Um, they also were very careful about plotting through the Mazars factors, um, making clear that they've kind of tried to address the precedent that the Supreme Court has laid out in this area. But I, I think that it's possible at least the Supreme Court will look at this and say, well, you know, have they really fully accounted for the risk that this will be used to harass and politically undermine a former president? And could there be separation of powers implications involved in that? Sure, um, there could be. And and maybe that's a reason we want to take it up. Not, I'd be very surprised if they reverse this holding, but they may say, well, you've got to think about these factors and give another Mazars type laundry list of saying you didn't fully adequately consider this, 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 take another crack at this, which would also have the effect of dragging out the timeline. I tend to think that's less likely. I'm optimistic. Uh, I think that this would not receive cert, but I just don't think we really know because it's a novel set of issues and we'll have to see how the justices think about it, particularly the number of new justices that are relatively new justices that we don't uh, have a strong sense about how they may fall on this. But I, I think so, you know, I think 60-40 denied cert, but I, I'm not very confident in that. What do you think, Jonathan? So I will say uh, one of the interesting things about this suit is the posture. So that, like with the McGann litigation and other litigation where Congress is trying to force someone to testify they have all the, the, you know, it's very hard to expedite those cases. But here you have the archivist who is planning to turn the documents over as soon as the court order and the administrative injunction is lifted. And so I think to echo what Scott said, this panel was very aware of that. And, and in the rebuttal asked, you know, how long should we leave this administrative injunction in place? And they came up with 14 days. So this is going to move very quickly. Now they can ask for another administrative injunction from the D.C. Circuit. They could ask for one from the Supreme Court to try to delay this. But I, I do think it makes it harder for Trump to sort of drag this out when the court is, in, when it's in this suit is in the posture in which there is a person who's ready to turn the documents over absent a court order, as opposed to a Meadows or a Bannon who's not going to testify until there's a court order forcing them to. So the, the impetus is on the other party to sort of get the court order. I will say one thing about the Supreme Court and Ben, you know this because uh, we were talking about it with the argument. They went on and on about Nixon v. GSA and what it means, what it, what the Supreme Court meant when it recognized that, that former President Nixon had a right to, quote, assert executive privilege, which is a highly questionable holding. The D.C. Circuit was bound by that. And I think you'll see a much deeper look at Nixon v. GSA if it went to the Supreme Court. I think the Supreme Court would sort of be definitely willing to reconsider that or to at least explain further what the interest of former president might have would be, and which could lead to a number of results such as like dismissal for jurisdictional reasons. So I think if you go to the Supreme Court, you'll see a whole ballgame open up. I don't think the end result will be different, but I, I don't think they will adopt this kind of, so this opinion, the 68 page opinion is very much sort of puts the power in the judiciary to look through all these things. It talks about all the various factors that are there and, and sort of empowers the judiciary in these kind of disputes. And I don't think this Supreme Court will be as uh, willing to do that. And I think you'll see some more fundamental arguments about the court's role if it gets there. Uh, I tend to agree with Scott that they probably won't take it given the nature of the suit um, and all of the political ramifications that are here. And they probably all agree, ultimately, that a former president shouldn't be able to assert privilege in this way. 
But if they do take it, uh, I, I think it'll open up a, a wide range of issues that the D.C. Circuit didn't really have to have to address because it was bound by a former precedent. I agree with that. I also think that there's a, you know, th- for those who have a deep suspicion of the conservative justices with respect to issues with a partisan valence, this is an area where I think the conservative justice, I mean, if you if you take the unitary executive seriously, the idea that there's any part of a former president is kind of a fourth branch of government with his own executive power interests is about as offensive an idea to that as as you can muster. And I I frankly can't imagine the current composition of the court being as solicitous of the interests of the former president as the court was in Nixon v. GSA. The thing to bear in mind about this is that this litigation is actually only over, I think, the first three tranches of what is an ongoing document production. We've seen this administrative injunction to produce these for this first set, but there's actually more coming. And interestingly, actually, there is a reference in the decision to the fact that that the last tranche of this, some set of documents actually know are not included in this litigation, and that at least as of the congressional, a congressional document that they're citing in this opinion, Trump hadn't actually pursued any litigation to try and stop the production of certain documents they objected to in that tranche. That's all just a long way of saying it's actually possible that this decision might go forward. Some documents in this tranche might end up being disclosed if the administrative injunction were to expire. uh, And for instance, the D.C. Circuit were not to be amenable to extending it for whatever reason. But they still pursue the merit litigation to try and resolve the actual issue for any future productions that may come forward. Because again, there's going to be more of these coming down the pike. I think that's really unlikely because kind of once you let the cat out of the bag with these sorts of things, you've basically said, well, if you rule the opposite way down the line, it means that you kind of improperly allowed this disclosure to happen. Um, That's why the D.C. Circuit issued the administrative junction in the first place. And I think they probably might feel pressure to issue at least one more if it's on a reasonable time frame to do something like petition for cert. But it's something to at least be aware of in terms of the posture of the case and and the actual issues here. There's also the question of whether the White House will be as sort of open and transparent and, and sort of waiving or not asserting executive privilege. Uh, the opinion notes that the, the agreement between the two branches is very important. And I think as the documents get a little further from sort of the core of what the Jan 6 committee is doing, you might see the White House sort of start to raise some objections. And then you're going to be in a completely different posture of DOJ and Congress on, on different sides. So it'll be interesting to see how long the agreement between the current administration and the committee lasts over these documents. Yes, when we get into all of the deep policy questions that uh, Mark Meadows was considering and advising the president on, the current White House is sure to switch sides. All right, let's zoom out. Molly, one of the striking things that you mentioned earlier and that Liz Cheney has also been talking about is the number of people that the committee has quietly deposed or interviewed. Uh, We've also had some news about planned hearings in the new year, open hearings. So I'm wondering what we know about kind of where the committee is from a high altitude point of view. 
you know, it doesn't sound like it's stalled based on these litigations at all. But uh, what do we know about the work that it's actually managing to do? Yeah, so I would say the committee is in sort of a weird spot right now. Um, the public focus, as this conversation we've just been having reflects, and much of the media coverage reflects, is really on process. Sort of, uh, is uh, Mark Meadows going to show up for his interview? Is Jeffrey Clark going to show up for his deposition? If they're not, are they going to plead the fifth? Is there going to be a? Uh, they going to be held in contempt? It's also not clear to me though that the committee has much of a choice um, about whether to kind of keep the public focus on on process right now. It seems as if, um, and Benny Thomas actually said something to this effect last night during the business meeting they had to uh, report out the uh, Meadows contempt report, which is, um, he said something along the lines of, we're not going to tell the public the whole story until we have the whole story to tell. And so given the complexity um, and just how much information they're trying to get and synthesize together, I do think that they're, they are in the spot where they're sort of peddling furiously under the surface, but something needs to be keeping people's attention above the surface. And right now that's this, um, some of these uh, like litigation questions in terms of thinking about uh, looking forward into, into the new year and, what Vice Chair Cheney has said about hearings. Uh, one sort of big question, outstanding question for me is for all of the focus on legislative purpose that we talked about earlier, that the DC Circuit talks about in this um, opinion, it really, I think, remains a question about what exactly, um, what kinds of areas of legislative change might the committee issue recommendations about. So the committee does not itself have legislative jurisdiction. So any legislative recommendations it makes would have to be taken up by the committees that do have jurisdiction um, in these in these areas. But it is in this, it is central to this committee's purpose to, um, to make recommendations about legislative change. And so, you know, we've heard discussions about, are they going to explore reforms to the Electoral Count Act? Are they going to explore reforms to the Capitol Police and Congress's internal security operations? Ben, I know you and our colleague Quinta have talked a lot about, is the, is the are there reforms to be made at the FBI or um, DHS about their intelligence gathering capabilities? All kinds of sort of legislative questions here that we aren't talking about right now, by and large, not exclusively, but most of the conversation right now is about these process questions. And so at some point, there's going to need to be a little bit of a, of a shift. Um, and I think my suspicion is that those hearings that um, Vice Chair Cheney talked about will be part of that shift, but we'll just have to see what, what comes in January. So Molly, what realistically do you expect to see in the coming weeks and couple of months? Is it, should we expect a, a sharp turn in focus to legislative recommendation reforms? Or should we expect, you know, the sort of dramatic hearings in somewhat the way the, the impeachment, the first impeachment committee did, that is, they do these depositions quietly, and then they basically redo them in a, you know, Fiona Hill or Alex Vindman or Masha Yovanovitch hearing, which do you expect? 
both. I think there is a real demand for both of those activities. And I think that not just because there is this kind of focus on establishing a legislative purpose as a platform from which to to litigate um, some of these cases, but genuinely because what the committee is supposed to be up to is making legislative recommendations. I think they are going to need to do that. But I also think that um, like just dropping a you know, several hundred page report that is based on the material that they have received in interviews and depositions will not be sufficient um, for the kind of public accountability role that the the committee is to play. And so I do, I that's part of why I expect that there may also be some of those um, hearings in the vein of the, the first Trump impeachment. One last question, and then I'll let you all go. The committee has put on quite a show of unity. And that is in very sharp contrast to the very fractured and polarized nature of the House more generally. Is that an act or are they, do we have evidence that they are really as united as Kinzinger and Benny Thompson and Liz Cheney are presenting publicly? Uh, it's an interesting question. Um, I, I did make the the note last night uh, while I was watching the uh, business meeting on the Meadows contempt citation that uh, I wondered aloud if this will be the first committee in the history of the House of Representatives to have every vote that it takes be um, unanimous um, with, uh, in this case, 9-0. And I think that I take the unanimity as, um, as genuine. I mean, I think it's possible that they are limiting their scope slightly to the things on which they have unanimity and that there might be some sort of items, perhaps somewhat more peripheral, that they're not sort of focusing on or taking up because they are not ones on which they have unanimous agreement. But certainly, I think so far in terms of much of what they've been doing around trying to really get information from the executive branch and otherwise, I I take the unanimity to be genuine. I think something worth thinking about in the context of opinion is is not just the unanimity of the committee, but actually the degree of coordination between the committee and the Biden administration, which has been pretty exceptional so far. I think between Biden's position on, you know, get doing away with executive privilege concerns over these document requests, between Justice Department's engagement on indictments for Bannon and these other referrals. You know, you've seen a deep level of coordination. I, I think it's likely to continue to a substantial extent. But as Jonathan has been really good about flagging for us every time we talk about this whole line of activity, and I think it's very true here, a lot of this is pushing into areas where the executive branch would traditionally be pretty uncomfortable. And I think that that's particularly true with this opinion that does, as Molly kind of teed up earlier in our conversation, hang a lot on this agreement between the political branches without delving as much as and putting sort of either substantive limits or other sort of restraints on that. I think it does. If you dig in there, there are different places you can read them out, but it doesn't emphasize them or frame them that way. And if I were the Biden administration's lawyer getting closer to the end of his first term, perhaps his only term, or getting closer to the end of his time in office, that could make me very nervous because of exactly what Republicans have openly threatened at various points, which is that when we take it back, the White House and Congress, we're going to use this right back on you. And so I wouldn't be surprised if you see some effort from most likely office legal counsel, I suppose, about trying to frame this decision and what it means in a way that cabins it a bit and puts some substantive limits on it. 
And for that to have effect, I think it's something, the sort of opinion we're probably going to have to see publicly at some point. So it kind of has resonance past the end of the administration. Jonathan, I'd be curious, actually, what your, your thoughts on that are as somebody who has a lot more experience with OLC than I do. No, yeah, I think that's a great point. And it, it kind of it ties in with what Ben's question about the, you know, the unanimity of the of the committee as well. You take the the events of January 6th and the attack on the Capitol and these extraordinary events. And I think you can get to a place where, you know, people who often disagree agree that there's something, this is incredibly important. There needs to be an investigation. There needs to be a serious look at what happened. And, and that's where the committee is. And that's where the Biden administration is. But the more you sort of emphasize how special that event is, then that, that leaves in place many of the kind of traditional barriers that OLC or the Department of Justice would put up for privilege and uh, immunity and things like that. And so as you get farther away from sort of the core of what the committee is doing and the, the attack on January 6th and start to look you know, deeper, I think you might see some of these, these concerns arise. And you know, it's not even just Biden's first term. If the House flips, right, in, in 2022, then he's going to face a barrage of subpoenas from the Republican House on all kinds of issues, and they've already threatened this. And so I think they're very concerned about setting precedents that they can't later distinguish. And the best way to do that, same way the DC Circuit did, is to say, you know, January 6th is different. Uh, it was extraordinary, and there needs to be a different approach to that than these other things. And so I think they're going to lay down those markers now so they can go back and see them, you know, if, if the tables are turned. And say, well, we gave the information then, but we're not going to now. We are going to leave it there. Molly Reynolds, Jonathan Schaub, Scott Anderson, thank you all for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Hey folks, it's coming up on the end of the year and there are a great number of you who are not yet material supporters of Lawfare. And I just wanna say this is a super time to join our Patreon at patreon.com lawfare, where you can get ad-free podcasts, join Lawfare Live and get access to our live events and other cool stuff and by the way, it is illegal to give material support to terrorist organizations, but not to Lawfare. The Lawfare podcast is edited by the one, the only, Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.